0: Okay, we're gonna start on page 91 because I think the last time we finished this up, we finished, we only got through verse seven. Can you believe that? I did four hours of commentary so far on Bezorah Kifah. We're only gonna get through about an hour of commentary tonight. And we're only eight verses in, or we finished seven verses. So this is gonna be, you know, maybe it'll be a, a year long study. I don't really know. All right, here we go. Bezorah Kifa 8. So if you guys just want to park it on page 91, I'm going to go ahead and just read through the first several verses, keep you guys, get you guys up to speed. I will remind you that Bezorah Kifah, the Gospel of Peter, has maybe 60 verses in it, maybe by some translations. I think by the one I'm using, it might have 40-something, so you can see how far we still have to go. But let me read what we've gone over so far, starting in verse 1. But of the Yahudim, non-washed his hands, neither Herod nor one of his judges. And since they did not desire to wash, Pilate stood up. And then Herod the king commanded that Adonai be taken, saying to them, What things I command you to do to him, do. Verse 3. But Yosef, the friend of Pilate and of of Adonai, had been standing there. And knowing they were about to crucify him, he came before Pilate and requested the body of Adonai for burial. And Pilate sent to Herod and asked for his body. And Herod said, Brother Pilate, even if no one has asked for him, we purpose to bury him especially as the Sabbath draws near. For it is written in the Torah that the sun should not set upon one that has been put to death. And he delivered him to the people on that day before the Feast of Matzah. And they took Adonai and pushed him as they ran and said, let us drag away the son of Elohim, having obtained power over him. I don't know, however many times I've read that now, that just haunts me every time I read that. It's such a, haunting picture of this mob mentality saying that the son of elohim has been given over to them in their power now and they just beat him and spit on him and you know mercil- mercilessly and they clothed him with purple and set him on the seat of judgment saying judge righteously o king of Yashareel. and one of them brought a crown of thorns and put it on the head of adonai and others stood and spat in his eyes and others smote his cheeks others pricked him with a reed and some Scourged him, saying, With this honor, let us honor the son of Elohim. And they brought two criminals and they crucified Adonai between them, but he held his peace as though having no pain. That's where we ended up last time. So, verse 8: And when they had raised the cross, they wrote the title, This is the King of Yasharel. And having set his garments before him, they parted them among them and cast lots for them. And one of the criminals reproached them, saying, we for the evils that we have done have suffered this but this man who has become the savior of men what wrong has he done to you and they being angered at him commanded that his legs should not be broken that he might die in torment and it was noon and darkness came over all yehud and they were troubled and distressed lest the sun had set while he uh, as yet uh, while he as yet alive for it is written for them that the sun set not on him who has been put to death. And one of them said, give him drink all with vinegar. That's as far as I hope to get tonight. Azor Akifa 8. And as you can see, and when they had raised the cross, they wrote the title, this is the king of Yashiro. Pilate isn't the one who wrote the plaque this time around. It was put there by the mob as an ongoing attempt at mockery. I will remind you, for the, if you're just tuning in for the first time, that, you know, Pontius Pilate and the Romans, they're not the ones crucifying him. They're not the ones beating him They're It's it's the Yahudim, it's the temple controller. So it's it's saying when they had raised the cross, it means they the temple controllers, they the Pharisees uh, raised the cross and they wrote this is the king of Yasharel. Some have stated that this single act is one of the biggest divergences from the canonical passion accounts, but I disagree. Let's not confuse y- yokanon with the synoptic gospels. It is yokanon and only Yokanon, which records Pilate as the sign maker. Contrarily, Matthew, yahoo Marcus, and Lucas make explicit mention of the sign. The defining difference being that they never finger uh, finger finger they, ne- <laughs> they never finger pilot as the culprit in those instances it is still they who come up with the material therefore it deviates from nothing you know just remember now that there's the synoptic gospels and then there's yokana the yoken and it's kind of its own thing read those three accounts again bizarre Kifa feels different but only because of the change of perspective is all not so long ago we witnessed a mob of yahudim sac uh, sarcastically calling Mashiach their king while beating him with sticks and anything else they could pull from the dungeon. The experience was an unsettling one. Though again, I will ask you to read the three synoptics with a fresh perspective, now that we have seen the sleight of hand. How about Bezorah Marcus, for starters? Now you can see there, um, actually, you know what? I'm just gonna read, you can see Bezorah Marcus, the, the Greek on the left. I'm gonna read from the Hebrew on the right. Now, it was the third hour when they hanged him up. So who is they here, all right? And they set a writing over him. This is Yeshua Natri, the king of the Yahudim. Then they hanged up two thieves with them. This is not the Romans. I'll remind you. This is the, the, the Yahudim doing this. So they hung up the sign one to the right and to the other to the left. Then the scripture was fulfilled, which says he was numbered with the wicked ones. That comes from the Hebrew gospel of Marcus, chapter 15. It says they hung him up and then they set a writing over him. Who was they? You know the answer to that one, but are still having a difficult time coming to terms with it. The passage is a match with Kepha. Let's keep snooping around in the synoptics though, just to be certain. The next passage derives from Matthew yahu So you can see again, the Greek on the left, I'm going to read from Hebrew, Matith yahu on the right. And they sat looking at him, and they placed a writing above his head. This is Yeshua, the king of the Yahudim. Then they hanged up two thieves with him, one to the right and right side and one to the left side. That comes from chapter 27. There are more of those they, them pronouns that we hear, that we hear so much about in the world today. And I'm willing to bet it's not describing Pilate. Once again, the same individuals who hung him high were responsible for producing the sign. Insisting that he was hung high in the Hebrew is interesting for sure, and may add insight to the mob mentality, though I'm guessing the word crucify was foreign to the language. The only divergent that I'm seeing in all of this is in Bezorikipha having the two thieves crucified with him before getting around to the sign. Because as I mentioned earlier, The way in which the dominoes fall in the three synoptics, the two thieves come across as an afterthought in the the vendetta. And now here is the account given to us in Lucas. So I'm going to read once again from, oh, well, I'll read um, Lucas on the left and then Matthew on the right. And the soldiers also also mocked him, coming to him and offering vinegar and saying, if you be the king of, of the Yahudim, save yourself. And after a superscription also was written over him in letters of Yavani and Latin and uh, Ivrit, this is the king of the Yahudim, the Zora Lucas. And then we read in Matthew, Matzith yahu And they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads and saying, you that destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you be the son of Elohim, come down from the cross likewise also the chief priests mocking him with the scribes and elders said he saved others himself he cannot save if he be the king of yashorel let him now come down from the cross and we will believe in him he trusted in elohim let him deliver him now if he will have if we will have him for he said i am the son of elohim a moment or so ago the decision was made to place Bezora Lucas right next to Matip And so, no, that's not a secretary slip-up. I've had a lot of secretary slip-ups tonight, but that wasn't one of them. I make, edit- <laughs> I make editing mistakes all the time. I'm somewhat confident, though, that this isn't one of them. There's something I want you to see between the two parallels. Firstly, it is the Greek being shown to you in both instances. The Zora Lucas seems to imply that the soldiers raised the sign, but on closer inspection, it doesn't even say that the sign was simply present and accounted for. Really though, I have already revealed the swap between soldiers and Pharisees, the Perushim. If you refer back to uh, probably last sessions in the Hebrew gospels, I will be sure to show more of those specifics in a little while. What I wanted you to see is the mockery, which the quote unquote soldiers, cast upon yahusha in greek lucas though in truth we know them to be the parashim they're the ones mocking him let's go with the romans for a moment for sake of argument the line they deliver is a familiar one it goes as follows if you be the king of the yahudim save yourself a little strange don't you think again the context it is as, as it is given to us is supposed to involve roman soldiers Roman soldiers are crucifying a supposed King from a backwater society. We are given no indication that they were criticizing a declared immortal though, to be fair, those weren't the accusations brought forward by the Sanhedrin and the parishion. If you refer back to the accusations, Yehusha was supposedly claiming himself to be a King in the place of Caesar. It is for, for Kaiser. It is for this crime that he was ultimately nailed to the wood. And so Imagine if Yehusha's character was swapped out with Herod, the Tetrarch. Why would they tell Herod to save himself? That's not the sort of thing you would say to a king on a cross. A king would be expected to have an entourage of bodyguards and friends at his disposal. After subduing the others by means of violence and then cornering him into checkmate, the proper line would read something like, nobody is here to save you now. That's what you would say to a conquered king. It's a subtle but noticeable difference, which is why I think it is important to read the parallel given to us in Matthew in Mattathiahu. It is Mattathiahu who attribute which attributes the same insults to the chief priests as well as the scribes and elders. Makes sense if you ask my opinion. I'm not claiming Roman soldiers wouldn't mock a small town rabbi in in uh, backwards thinking. Outskirts of the Roman of the Empire, claiming to be Kaiser's superior. All I'm saying is that kifa and the Hebrew Gospels have a unified handle on the situation. Well, here is yokana's account of the uh, of the billboard above his head. So let's see what uh I put this time. I guess the Greek on the right. So let's read what the Hebrew says. Now Pilate wrote a saying and put it on the warp and woof. I always thought that was funny, the Hebrew Gospels, they don't call it the cross, they call it the warp and woof And this was its language, Yeshua of Nazareth, or of Nazareth, the king of the Yahudim. So many of the Yahudim read this writing, for that place where Yeshua was hanged is near that city. And it was written in the Hebrew and Greek and Latin language. So the rulers of the Yahudim said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Yahudim, but that he was saying that he is the king of the Yahudim. Pilate answers, saying, that which is written will be written. The Greek and Hebrew read exactly the same. Uh, So I'm not going to read the Greek for lack of time. You guys can, you know, read it. Pilate may have been hands-off with Mashiach's murder, but he was responsible for the commercial advertisement, according to Yochanan. So what gives? I think I know. While the temple controllers worked up the crowd into a beehive frenzy of mockery, Pilate wrote the sign for the purpose of social commentary. He was protesting their devilry. That much is evident in the many extra canonical accounts surrounding Pilate's character, and also in the fact that the Yahudin did not take kindly to his message. Try not to forget that they were technically claiming the same thing about him, that he was the king, only through sadistic means, though. The Parashim, the Pharisees, were responsible for the purple robe and the crown of thorns. The Hebrew Gospels concur uh, with Kepha on that one. They also placed them on the judgment seat and then spit into his eyes, claiming they were doing so to honor, quote-unquote, the son of Elohim. Their disapproval of Pilate's message uh, message seems to stem off the likelihood that the Yehudan governor believed his claims to be true. What I have written, I have written. He had already demanded the body of Mashiach from Herod, and now this. In both instances, the Yahudim had no legal authority to override his decisions. There is even further evidence that Pilate did not crucify Yehusha. The possibility exists that the Parashim wrote a sign, and then Pilate added his own contribution in three separate languages. I don't necessarily believe that to be the case, but it's an option worth considering. And keep in mind now we have the tension here because you have the three synoptic gospels that say that the uh, that they put up the sign, and then you have in the Gospel of Yochanan Pilate puts up the sign. So which is it, right? The only other scenario seems to be one which has Kepha and the synoptic and the synoptic gospel writers mistakenly thinking the perishing had placed a sign there for the purposes of mockery, because they most certainly used it to their advantage, advantages, even if Yocanon records their initial disproval. Now keep in mind, I pointed out that Yocanon has a witness there, the disciple whom he loved, whom he said he got his notes from. So here we have a direct person who was at the foot of the cross who, you know, I, I, I think Yocanon's account is, is probably spot on. The reason why Yochanan knew Pilate had uh, contributed the sign has something to do with his insider's knowledge of the situation. I just explained that for you right there. FYI, I see no evidence that Yochanan was present for the crucifixion, despite continuous claims to the contrary. But then neither was Matithyahu, Marcus, Lucas, and Kifa. They were going off the reports of those standing around the yellow tape, as well as roadside travelers checking out the crime scene from afar rush hour traffic was a headache. Yahusha's public spectacle at the hands of the perishim and on the busiest pedestrian day of the year, no less, would have been the talk of the town and for years to come, decades even. Centuries later, we're still talking about it. A Passover to remember for sure. The common consensus among the thousands of witnesses may have been an assumption, a guilt by association sort of thing. The difference with Yokanan is that he was basing his Basora off the written account of the Talmudim whom Yahushua loved. So I just explained this, who was present, by the way. And you guys all know who I think, who I believe the disciple whom he loved was. I will be sure to go over who <laughs> I'm getting ahead of myself over and over again. I will be sure to go over who I believe that individual to be later on in the commentary. Because Kefa most definitely does clue us into that individual. But for now, knowing that Yosef of Rama was a friend of Pilate should suffice to Yokanin's insider's knowledge. More on that at a later hour. Moving on to Bizarra Kefa, verse 9. And having set his garments before him, they parted them among them and cast lots for them. The they them pronouns continue. Perhaps you too have experienced what it is like to sit around the table exposing the conspiracies of our sociopathic controllers against humanity, only to have that one person in the room ask, who are they exactly? Uh Uh-oh, they're on to you. Your answer determines whether or not you're an quote-unquote anti-Semite, because ask nearly any pastor, Zionism is apparently a biblical thing. I figure it's the very reason why the scholars aren't talking about the Hebrew gospels, much less Bezorah Kifa. The Parashim were personally involved in the Shilaki and we can't have that. There, I think it was just the Pope recently who just came out with a quote and said they had nothing to do with it whatsoever. It was all Rome. They were like, you know, boo, hoo, hoo on the, on the roadside. They had nothing to do with it. Their involvement isn't a fluke either. I had earlier promised to show more of the fine prints in the Hebrew Gospels. And so here is the obvious. The casting of lots in Bezorah, Yochanan, reads as follows. Now, you can see the Greek there on the left. Not going to read that. Everybody can look that up in their Bible anyways. But Hebrew Gospel of Yochanan, chapter 19, 23 through 24 says, Then the Pharisees, there's the Hebrew word right there, peroshim, That does not translate to Roman soldiers. When they had hanged him up, took the garments and divided them in four parts, for everyone his part. Therefore they said among themselves, let us not tear it, but let us cast lots over it, whose it will be, in order that the scripture could be fulfilled, which says they divided my clothes among themselves and cast lots on my garment. Therefore the Pharisees did these things. The casting of lots over his garment is a reference to Psalm 22, a Psalm of David. It fits perfectly within the framework when recognizing who they, the them, they people, truly were. Here is your first clue. David's enemies were not the Goyim. Okay, it wasn't the, the Kitim or Kittim. Who, uh, who was he hounded down by but his own people? He happened to be the, the king of Israel. Well, the same could be said of Yehusha, Hamashiach. His enemies are listed for us again and again throughout the Gospels, in hopes that we don't forget and cast our blames upon Italy. I'll give you one to consider. This comes from again, Bezorah, Yokanon chapter eight. Looks like it's a uh, thirty-three through third. Well, thirty-three through forty-four. They answered him, we are Abraham's seed and were never in bondage to any man. How say you, ye shall be made free? Yahushua answered them, amen, amen, I say unto you, whosoever commits sin is the servant of sin. And the servant abides not in the house forever, but the son abides ever. If the son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. I know that ye are Abraham's seed, but ye seek to kill me, because my word hath no place in you. I speak that which I have seen with my father and you and ye do that which ye have seen with your father. When was the last time you saw this message spoken in a church? They answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father. Yahushua saith unto them, if ye were Abraham's children, ye would do the works of Abraham. But now ye seek to kill me, a man that hath told you the truth, which I have heard of Elohim, this did not Abraham ye do the deeds of your father then said they to him we be not born of fornication we have one father even elohim yahushua said unto them if elohim were your father ye would love me for i proceeded forth and came from elohim neither came i of myself but he sent me why do ye not understand my speech even because ye cannot hear my word ye are of your father the devil and the lust of your flesh ye will do. He was the murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it, the father of lies. It couldn't be spelled out any clearer for us, the by Mashiach, but most laymen would rather listen to their Zionist controllers, seeing as how they own the media. Most of our pulpits are bought off by this point as well. Others are too indoctrinated to care. But I will ask anyways, who sought to kill Yehusha again? Let's just say it wasn't the manufacturers of spaghetti going about killing the prophets. I love pasta. And like he said, Hasatan was a murder from the beginning. You might call it the the Cain and Abel debacle. It's not too great of a leap in logic to deduce that Hasatan wanted Yahusha dead as well. That same deductive argument will conclude that the Perishim would as well, seeing as how they are identified to us as his children and all. I mean, Yehusha says it right here. See how the logic flows? Amazing. Nowhere does Yehusha finger Pontius Pilate or the Romans as being his murderers. It is always cognitive dissonance which takes the sudden detour. All right, we're on to Bezorah Kepha 10. And one of those criminals reproached them saying, we for the evils that we have done have suffered this, but this man who has become the savior of men, what wrong has he done to you? And they being angry at him, commanded that his legs should not be broken, that he might die in torment. Demas, you have already been introduced to. Remember the, the, the thief on the cross. The synoptic gospels are intent on mentioning the two thieves on the cross though Lucas gives them the most attention in having the men argue amongst each other. None, however, has the penitent thief rebuking Yahusha's executioners. And so here is another twist to the story, one that involves the unbroken leg of the thief on the cross, or does it? I've read this passage repeatedly and had the hardest time figuring out whose legs Kepha is referring to, Demas or Yahusha. He might be saying, the Yahudim were so pissed at the unnamed criminal that they decided not to break his legs. Then again, that same someone likely had an important part to play in the Passover lamb narrative, which we read in Numbers 9, 11 through 12. The 14th day of the second month at at even, they shall keep it and eat it with matzah and bitter herbs. They shall leave none of it until the morning, nor break any bone of it. According to all the ordinances of the Pesach, they shall keep it. That is to say, it is because the penitent thief on the cross asked the wrong sort of question of the establishment, the kind which prods for the truth and exposes the lies and the answers, that the perishing refused to break Yahusha's legs out of spite. In this way, scripture was fulfilled. And so it's almost like, uh, it's like it's like the most high had to like, keep prodding them even more to like fulfill scripture you know was it the legs of demas or yahusha who are being referred to Yehusha's obviously when unbroken that much is given <clears> how <throat> much is it given and we know the legs of both thieves were eventually broken according to yokanon 1932 which i will turn to in a moment therefore i am inclined to conclude that the unbroken legs of mashiach has kifa's attention rather than those of the unnamed criminal makes sense. That conclusion is most evident when he, Demas, declares Yahushua to be the Savior of men. Calling him the Passover lamb would have been a little too obvious, even if Savior is ultimately, ultimately implicating the same thing. I mean, so think about that. He's like saying, hey, this is the Savior right here. And they're like, that's it. Or, let me rephrase it. It's like, hey, this is the Passover lamb right here. And they're like, that's it. We're not breaking his legs. How dare you call him the Passover lamb? And then look at how David describes Mashiach. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but Yahuwah deliver him out of them all. He guards all his bones. Not one of them is broken. That comes from Psalms 3420. There is some irony for you. David promised that Yahuwah would deliver the righteous one so that not one of his bones would be broken. An unmistakable reference to the Passover lamb. Demas then declared Yehusha to be David's long-awaited savior. And the temple controllers were like, that's it. <laughs> Don't even think we'll be breaking those legs of yours now fornication boy. Sheer irony in breaking the Torah out of spite. No, un, no pure unadulterated hatred is more like it. They were successful in simultaneously overseeing a fulfillment of its requirements. That's a, that's crazy talk. Here is yokinen's coverage of the leg breaking scene. You guys are familiar with the Greek. You can see the soldiers there. Well, let's read the Hebrew Bezorah of Yochanan. It says, so the Pharisees, the Perushim, came and cut off the thighs of those who were hanged up with Yeshua. But one of the Pharisees took a spear or a lance and cut his Yeshua's thigh open. The they-them in this story kept their promise. After breaking the legs of the two thieves, the Perushim weren't even interested in doing the same with Yehusha." They simply cut his thigh open with a lance some of you will notice i skipped verse 33 in the hebrew gospel and are crying foul in the greek verse 33 states the following but when they came to Yahushua, they saw that he was dead already they broke not his legs well i would have quoted the line except that in the hebrew there is no 33. it simply doesn't exist first verse 33 in the greek gospel reads more like an explanation for why the roman guards didn't follow through with their routine duty. But then the Hebrew doesn't even think of mentioning a moot moot point because the parachute never had any intention of breaking them to begin with. You see how that works? Looks like Kepha was right again. Who would have known? It's almost like the Zora Kepha and the Hebrew Gospels were in harmony or something. But that's probably none of my business. So just in review there, there is no verse 33 in the Hebrew Yokenon, the part where they... They came to Yeshua and saw that he was dead already and they broke down his legs. Uh, because it, it seems to be added in the Greek because it's trying to deal with the Roman soldiers. They're trying to explain why he didn't break the legs. But we know that they had the Pharisees never had any desire to break his legs. All right. We're going to end on these two, I think. This is kind of a long section. We're going to end on verses 11 and 12 tonight of Bizarre So let's read this. And it was noon and darkness came over all Yehud. I really like this section. I'm excited for this. And they were troubled and distressed lest the sun had set while he was yet alive. For it is written for them that the sun set not on him who has been put to death. And one of them said, give him to drink gall with vinegar. And they mixed and gave him something to drink and fulfilled all things and accomplished their sins against their own head. And many went about with the lamps, supposing that it was night and fell down. I love that description there. Let me read that one more time. You could let it simmer in your head as we read through this. And many went about with lamps, supposing that it was night, and they fell down. Seriously, could Yahusha's enemies be any less literal in their desperate attempt to fulfill scripture? I'm beginning to think they went out of their way to demonize themselves, while simultaneously making Yahuwah's word credible. It says they fulfilled all things in offering him the drink. And so regarding gall mixed with vinegar, that's a direct reading from Psalm 69, which goes as follows. Lest, lest there should be among you man or woman or family or tribe whose heart turneth away this day from Yahuwah Elohainu to go and serve the Elohai of these nations, Thus, there should be among you a root that bears gall and wormwood. Deuteronomy 29, 18. Oops, wrong passage. Including Devarim or Deuteronomy was a last-minute detour because there is the gall offered to Yahushua. Only here it is to those who turn away from Yehua Eloheinu for the Elohi of the other nations. So you can get into their head, and you can see what the pharisees are doing here they're they're saying no you're leading us away to another elohim really they they were trying to lead people to the talmud and you know he's trying to lead them to the torah i am thinking the yahudim were attempting to pacify this one when in fact psalms is what they ended up with and then we read here in psalms in sixty nine twenty one. uh they gave me also gall, uh, you see the same word brosh, as you do in Deuteronomy, for my meat. And in my thirst, they gave me vinegar as drink. I put uh, the NLT in here, so let's see what this says. But instead, they gave me poison, hmm. rosh for food. They offered me sour wine for my thirst. I am offering the New Living Translation up into the mix because it straight up says the gall which was offered to him was a poison. That's what the Hebrew word "rosh" essentially means, poison. It has furthermore been suggested that the hemlock mentioned in Husha or Hosea 10, four, or Keros in Hebrew is yet another rendering of Rosh, most likely indicating the poppy, poppycock. It would thus stand that the water of gall mentioned in Jeremiah, Jeremiah eight fourteen is a reference to poppy juice. That was Socrates' poison of choice, you know, in Plato's Phaedo. Socrates drank from a cup of poison hemlock and then proceeded to tell everyone around him that the earth wasn't flat but a globe. It's true. You have to read it for yourself. By the way, this is the first ever mention of uh, the earth being a globe in literature on Socrates' deathbed. When his disciples asked him to expand further on his claim as to the globularity of their world, he said there wasn't time, and then he died. What a joker. Fun times, though. Socrates' disciples continued to pass that cup of poison hemlock around the room, it seems, because just about everyone believes the world is a globe. Thank you, Socrates. That's just a side note to the fact that Yahushua rejected the poison they offered him. The Yahudi may have attempted to highlight Deuteronomy 29, 18, but then it is no coincidence that they they were also in the darkness at the moment of offering speaking of which the elephant in the room happens to be the method by which many attribute to the darkness the 1961 movie barabbas which uh, i have never seen uh, but i'm told it filmed an actual eclipse of the sun to produce their effect thereby agreeing with the conclusion of many well houston we have a problem we have a problem Houston, because a solar eclipse only happens when the moon passes between the sun and the earth the jewish months begin with the first sighting of a waxing crescent not just in judaism though science even tells us that a new moon happens to be when the moon is lapped by the sun in their heavenly circuit so immediately after a solar eclipse is sci- uh, is scientifically possible That is when the new month begins. If you need this spilled out for you, Passover does not happen until the 14th of Nissan, halfway into the moon cycle. Rinse and repeat again and again if need be. So I'll say this again. If you need this spilled out for you, Passover does not happen until the 14th of Nissan, halfway through the moon cycle. Therefore, you cannot have a solar eclipse. It's not possible. Take all the time you need. I see two possible conclusions before us. Either a solar eclipse by way of the moon was not the cause of the darkness or nearly everybody's biblical calendar is off and the feast need readjusted to coincide with the full moon rather than the Crescent. It means the full moon would be the beginning of the month rather than the Crescent. I will give, give a brownie point to the full moon crowd and allow them their victory lab their victory lap because this is the single best proof I have seen for their argument. However, I'm about to disagree with it and here's why. Just so we're clear, I am yet to be convinced that a solar eclipse was the cause of the darkness. Biblical historians and scholars alike have long been plagued by the mere mention of it for some of the same reasons. The problem you see is that there is no such record of any comparable event transpiring in the heavens at the moment when numerous gospels, uh, gospel accounts claim it to have happened. Furthermore, the canonical gospels have everyone wondering if the darkness was a worldwide phenomenon or simply a local one, of which Kifa finally answers the millennial old question. It was a localized event, according to Kifa, if you if you paid attention, exclusive to the country of Yehud, because it was a judgment just on Yahud. For many of you, That screams of a solar eclipse. Again, though, I'm not so certain of that, nor were the early Christians apparently. I just thought of this. Again, this is more evidence that the Romans were not being judged, right? It was a judgment on Yehuda, not on Italy. All right, so we get this from Tertullian, and he says, and yet, nailed upon the cross, he exhibited many notable signs by which his death was distinguished from all others. At his own free will, he, with a word dismissed from from him, his ruach, anticipating the executioner's work. In the same hour too, the light of day was withdrawn when the sun at the very time was in his meridian blaze. Those who were not aware that this had been predicted about Christ, no doubt, though in an eclipse, you yourselves have an account of the world portent still in your archives. The earliest surviving discussion that I can find derives from Tertullian, writing in the whereabouts of 197. The Latin author from Carthage claimed that many people mistook the darkness for an eclipse, when in fact it wasn't one. Furthermore, there was an independent account of the omen held in the Roman archives, which proved his point. I checked. No such document presently exists in the public, but... Perhaps somebody reading this with a special Pope approved clearance can check the Vatican vaults on my behalf and then get back to me. Thank you in advance. Much appreciated management. Vizora Kifa throws the solar eclipse theory into further question. Look at how he highlights the event. And many went about with lamps supposing that it was night and fell down. I have witnessed enough solar eclipses in my lifetime to know that it is by no means a descriptor of the typical experience. A total solar eclipse lasts anywhere from 10 seconds to maybe 7.5 minutes. Hardly enough time for someone to put their protective eyewear on, much less go stumbling around in the darkness, lighting lamps, falling over into ditches. Mistake it for a nap, maybe. Nighttime, though? I'm not buying it. How ignorant do you think these ancient people were? And before I forget, here's how Bizora Matsathiyahu describes the same event. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over the land until the what? Until the ninth hour. The darkness lasted for a total of three hours. 180 minutes, give or take. Sorry, that right there just proves a solar eclipse by way of the moon. Prove me wrong. Come at me, bro. I am well aware that the sun stood still in the sky in uh, Yahusha or Joshua 10.13. That same passage references Yashar 88, 63 through 65, which furthermore claims that even the moon was at a standstill. A similar event was recorded in 2 Kings 28 through 11 when Hezekiah observed the shadows of the sun move backwards 10 steps. Yeah, well, the writers of Yehusha and Yashar specifically note the standstill in both instances. In the instance of Yahusha HaMashiach, not one gospel writer thinks to do the same. You'd think they would. Were they not familiar with the well noted miracle in the Tanakh? That very well could have said, they, they very well could have said the sun and the moon were at a standstill for three consecutive hours, but no. And then consider the implications if they did. There is a one hour difference between Yerushalayim and Rome. We are told the darkness began at 12 noon, making it 11 a.m. in the Roman capital. The darkness might've been localized to Yehuda, but then the rest of the world would have noticed the delay in the sun's western circuit, or westward circuit. There are no such records of the proposed event because it was not an eclipse, nor was the sun paused for a single moment. Something else is at play and I aim to show it. Contrarily, much can and probably needs to be said regarding the Yehusha Yashar episode. For starters, there is that one person in the room who will still, who is still clinging to the Copernican globe model. I'm sorry, star- sorry. I am so sorry to hear of it. I say that one person quote unquote, because yes, you are very nearly outnumbered by this point. In case you haven't noticed it is harvest time. People are waking up to the truth of the unexpected cosmology all across this motionless realm. And a few of you are being stubborn, your loss. Every other imaginative explanation as to the true meaning of the sun standing still in recent church history, and there's been several, has so far fallen to the wayside, with the expositor in question fading from the spotlight into obscurity. I actually just realized this the other, a couple weeks ago, when we were reading through the Globe. I had the epiphany when I was reading from I was like, oh my goodness, the reason why all these scholars and the theologians say that the book of Joshua was poetry and that the one we have in our Bible is a forgery, is because it explicitly says that the book of Jasher talks about the sun standing still. And so they're like, see, it's a book of poetry. It has to be because the sun could not have stood still. That's the very reason they say it was a book of poetry. And it wasn't, it wasn't a book of poetry. It was a book of history. Eclipse may be the sunny school answer, but it is once again, the wrong one to give. You will tell me it was the earth standing still rather than the sun, LOL. The earth orbits the sun at an average of 67,000 miles per hour or 18.5 miles per second. I bet you didn't realize we're going to get a little flat earth lesson tonight. That's off the charts, Mach speed. The SR 71 blackbird, which is pictured is an impressive artifact of aerial engineering and can travel at Mach 3.2, nearly 2,500 miles per hour. That's insane. At these speeds, it expands nearly a half a foot in size due to the rising temperatures. So think about this now. It is in our atmosphere, and it is expanding in size, uh, uh, half a foot in size due to the rising temperatures, and it's only going Mach 3.2. Okay, not, uh, uh, let's see, what what is the Mach of the Earth? It's like off the charts. Okay, so it's still... Sixty-five thousand miles per hour slower than the reported spin of the earth though i will ask anyways what would happen to the pilot at the sr 71 if it came to a complete and simultaneous standstill like it just you know like a brick wall standstill he would be egg yolk on the dashboard is what oh but the theory of gravity that must be it everybody buckle up grab hold of something Yahushua's sitting up, another one of his prayers. We're hitting the brakes. Uh, Rebecca, you're going to love that. I spelled brakes wrong. Best to best keel over and kiss your butt goodbye, conjuring the magic of the theory of rev- relativity as our shield of protection. Or maybe there's a better explanation, one which includes the motionless plane of Hebrew cosmology. The word for sun in Hebrew is Shemesh. When taken as a verb, it means to run hastily, to move very fast. Perhaps this is none of my business, but I take that to mean that Hebrew writers wanted us to understand the sun as something which runs hastily and moves very fast. Therefore, Yahushua 10.13 should be understood as thus, and, sh- and the hastily running, very fast-moving sun stood still! A bunch of exclamation points. What the writers of Yehusha and Yasher should have, should have said is that the earth, fixed, immovable, and firm, according to Psalm 9610, stands still, but no. Ancient civilizations across the motionless realm all observed the same phenomena: The sun stood still in the sky. I didn't wake up this morning thinking I'd get into it, but now I realize the evidence needs to be put forth so as to contrast what is happening during the passion accounts. The Yahusha Yashar account is recorded as a matter of his story, whereas the so-called eclipse in the gospels is not. I have come prepared with ancient text. In terms of extra biblical, the oldest recorded reference that I can find to the sun standing still in the sky dates all the way back to the bards of Greece. Some might even say to Homer, the, the blind bard of uh, I, Ionia, and here it is. I began to sing of Pallas, Athena, the glorious goddess, bright-eyed, inventive, unbending of heart, pure virgin, savior of cities, courageous. From his awful head, wise Zeus himself, bare his arrayed in warlike arms of flashing gold, and all seized all the gods as they gazed. But Athena sprang quickly from the immortal head and stood before Zeus, who holds the Aegis, shaking a sharp spear. Great Olympus began to reel horribly at the might of the gray-eyed goddess, and earth round about cried fearfully, and the sun was moved and tossed with dark waves, while foam burst forth suddenly. The bright sun of Hyperion, uh, or Helios the Sun, stopped his swift, uh, swift-footed horses a long while, until the maiden palace Athena had stripped the heavenly armor from her immortal Shoulders. And this comes from the Homeric hymn 39 to Athena. Hyperion, aka the Sun, stopped his horse-led chariot for a great long while, indicating that he resumed the same degree in the sky from the perspective of the earthly observer. But then even more fascinating is the celestial battle between heavenly immortals. Where does all of that sound familiar? It is another confession from the writers of scripture. Immortal beings fight over the fate of mankind in the Bible as well. Fine, don't believe me. I don't expect you to. Perhaps people tell me all the time, uh, I do great research, but they don't agree with all of my conclusions. Well, it's not my conclusion this time around. The Bible actually agrees with Homer this time around. You have to read it all the way through Yahusha and then several chapters into a sequel to see what I mean. So this comes from Judges 520. They fought from heaven. The stars and the courses fought against uh, uh, Sycira. Blink and you will miss it. I don't know how many times I've read right over this passage without uncovering the X marks the spot in unexpected. Can't unsee it now, can you? I, for one, have personally seen the stars battling in the heavens, and I stand by it. That or they were mimicking adolescents learning how to square dance. I will leave it up to you to decide. What I'm getting at is that divine beings in the heavens were ba- uh, battling over the fate of Yehusha's prayer on that very long day Yehusha doesn't outright say so but he needed have to judges has already found agreement with the sun standing still account in homer now uh herodotus was a historian from the whereabouts of 5 bc making him another important contributor to the Yehusha yashar account many uh, scrumptious observations can be ascertained from his visit to egypt Though it is the archive shown to him by the temple priests, which has my current interest. Herodotus couldn't help but notice one particular day, which was recorded to be twice as long as any other day. Moving on, another Egyptian tradition is told by French scholar uh, uh, Fernand Crombeti, whom we are told is a translator of hieroglyphics. And this is what he has to say. The sun, thrown into confusion, had remained low on the horizon, and by not rising, had spread terror amongst the great doctors. Two days had been rolled into one. The morning was lengthened to one and a half times the normal period of effective daylight. A certain time after this divine phenomenon, the master had an image built to keep further misfortune from the country. In a small angle on the edge of the horizon, the sun itself, which had just risen at the spot where the moon was going, Instead of crossing the sky, stayed where it was. While the moon, following a narrow path, reduced its speed and climbed slowly. The sun stopped moving and its intensity of light was reduced to the brightness at daybreak. I had considered taking the marker out on the important parts, but then I would have ended up highlighting the entire thing. To sum it up, the sun remained in the visible, in the visible heavens long enough to roll two separate days into one with never a night in between thereby sending the scientists into tailspins, oh dear. I am told there are many similar accounts throughout Mesopotamia recounting the long day, including Babylon and Persia, though the claims given to us in the Western Hemisphere are far more telling. It is in the Americas where we come to learn of the long night, which would make sense. The first person to learn of the quote-unquote long night, according to the official narrative, was Bernadine de Sahagun, the uh, Franciscan friar. His arrival to quote-unquote New Spain in 1529 produced a host of collaborative stories, or collaborating stories, one of which tells of a time when the sun rose only about the horizon and remained there without moving, the moon also stood still. Elsewhere, the Ojibwa, Ojibwe Indians tell of a long night with no lights. In the Canadian late Winnipeg area, the I guess it's the Boonji tribe made the same claims, as did the Omaha natives, who colorfully described the sun as being caught in a trap by a rabbit before sunrise. The Ute Indians described the disruption of the movement of the sun, and French Jesuit, I know, Paul Le June, recounted a long night as told to him by the Wyandots. Throughout Central and South America, the Mexican um, um, annals of uh, man butchering this Quat uh, which is dated to 1,000 BC, describes another long night. My favorite account may just belong to an Aztec inscription dating to the whereabouts of 1,400 BC, which reads, "The sun did not rise for a whole day in the city of the gods." A similar Aztec narrative describes a human sacrifice offered to the gods, so that once again the world might have a sun. And then look at the long night account given to us in uh Vuh. They did not sleep, they remained standing, and great was the anxiety of their hearts and their stomachs for the coming of the dawn and the day. Oh, if oh if we only could see the rising of the sun, what shall we do now? They talked but they could not calm their hearts, which were anxious of the coming of dawn. There are many stories. I have only given you a handful of them. Some are direct quotes, while others will have to be sought out on your own time. It seems like all ancient people fall in agreement regarding the very long day or night, depending on whether you're in Mesopotamia or the Americas, or I should say, depending on where one resided upon the motionless plane, which is the other thing. They all agreed upon the basic nature of cosmology. The sun standing still made perfect sense to them. Nobody was spinning around on their axis. They didn't need gravity to explain it away. L O L really, I didn't wake up this morning thinking I'd be taking you all through it again. It was totally worth it though. There is ample documentation to the sun standing still during Yahusha's day, which begs the question, and by Yahusha I'm saying, uh, Joshua. Why can't we say the same thing, same regarding the eclipse of Yahusha's crucifixion? We can't, because it wasn't an eclipse. Perhaps the Yahudim thought it was an eclipse at first. You figure there were some oohs and ahs at the beginning because science is neat, you know. But then after the first 15 minutes had passed, somebody would have figured it out and proclaimed, oh crap, I think it's nighttime already. I haven't gotten around to preparing the Passover lamb and my wife is going to kill me. Had the sun and the moon wielded together for three consecutive hours, then Rome as well as the Yahudim would only be capable of scrubbing so many historical documents. Civilizations all across the world would have known about the noontime darkness and then put it down into writing. But as Muzora Kifa has already mentioned, the event was exclusive to Yehuda alone. The only reason we know that darkness lasted for three consecutive hours is because Matthew tells us. so. Actually, Bezorah Matzithyahu has much to say on darkness thematically, and very few people seem to connect those dots. I wouldn't be the least bit surprised if Kifa does as well, but we don't have those parts of the document. Unique to Matzithyahu is the outer darkness, which you guys know I've talked about this a lot recently, a location which no other gospel mentions by name. They can be found in Matthew 8, 11-12, in 22, 11-14, and 25, 30. I offer those addresses because I do not intend to go over them um, all. Well, here is the first mention. This comes from, uh, actually, I think this is the only one I'm going to mention tonight, yeah. Matthew 8:11 through 12. And I say to you that many shall come from the east and west and shall sit down with Abraham and Yitchak and Yaakov in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The outer darkness is a location, but much more so, it is a state of mind. You may recall that I already came to this conclusion in my book, The Hidden Wilderness*. What I have failed to mention, however, is the three hours of darkness at the cross. How is this oversight even possible? You see, the reader of Matthew should be perfectly capable of digging through the developing plot particularly as they arrive upon each of these coming darkness references and then gasp when the very thing Yehusha warned about happens in real time. The darkness was intended as a judgment against the self-entitled children of the kingdom as they go about living their lives in rebellion. It's not like Yahushua didn't warn the Yahudim of the coming darkness. Is it any coincidence then that they crucified the son of Elohim and then within minutes Darkness fell upon them while they stood around and watched? No, it's not. Even still, they had another 40 years to repent before Yerushalayim's destruction. Now, even gotquestions.org is pressed to admit that something is amiss with the outer darkness narrative. Nearly all theologians claim the outer darkness is a reference to hell. This is the hell, it should say hell. But apparently that's not the case this time around with the internet Q&A people. Here is their quote. Perhaps the place of judgment is pictured as dark, quote-unquote dark, because of the absence of God's cheering presence. And then follows with several Bible memory verses. For once I find myself in agreement with them. The outer darkness is a place of consciousness. It isn't Sheol, and it doesn't appear to be the abyss. Nor does it sound like the lake of fire. Sheol is dropped into the lake of fire in Revelation 20, 14, once and for all. Death itself is done away with. The destruction is irrevocable. It would be strange indeed for someone to be tossed into the lake of fire only to die and then go to Sheol, but then to be extinguished once and for all in the lake of fire. Nor have I ever seen a single reference to the lake of fire being a place of darkness. The God questions crew is absolutely correct in suggesting a place of spiritual darkness. And like I said, they include memory verses. Let's look at some of them. Um, we'll look at a couple of them. and We're going to end on this tonight. We're almost done. You hide your face. They are troubled. You take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. You send forth your Ruach, they are created and you renew the earth. That comes from Psalms 104. Good verse. The hidden darkness is quite possibly a place where Yahuwah Elohim hides his face. Does that incident sound remotely familiar? Be patient. We are about to arrive there in Bezorah Kepha. It may even be a state of mind. The reason I can say that is because of the passage which the Bible Q&A people follow up with, uh, uh, Yokenon, Rishon, that would be First uh, 1 John 1 1.5, and also 2.11. Then, this then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that Elohim is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. I mean, think about that with the, the cross scene right there. And then we see in 2.11, but he that hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and knows not whether he goes because that darkness has blinded his eyes. That reminds me, I'm just like they're like walking around with the lanterns falling into ditches. They know not where they go. They're living in darkness. A clear indicator as to the reality of the outer darkness is given in the stride of the individual. It is not where he is walking so much as in his manner of walking. Remind yourself how they went about in Bezora Kifah again. They were lighting lamps and still managing to fall over. Today, many to most people reside in the darkness as the path of light continues to be an extremely narrow one. Really though, I can't think of a more extreme example to illustrate uh, y- Yokinan's point than the passion event. The proof of their lie is in their hatred. They quite literally murdered the light of the world while claiming to have fellowship with Elohim. No wonder the lights went off. The darkness was a holy spiritual event.